Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 79 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Karen Russell. Her first novel, Swamplandia, about a family of alligator wrestlers, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and has been optioned by HBO. She's also the author of two collections of surreal short stories, St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves and Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Lynn M. Thomas joins us for a panel discussion on the weirdest stories ever. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Karen Russell. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so first of all, you know, your first novel, Swamp Landia, was optioned by HBO. So just what's the current status of that project? Um, in development, still in development. So, And I'm not even sure if that's the industry lingo. I, uh, I think that um, they have a writer who's working on it. Um, the writer is not me. I'm a consultant, um, and what those duties are are kind of fuzzy to me. Um, so I think we'll just have to see. Um, I'm trying to be guardedly optimistic. I think a lot has to go right for something that gets optioned to actually make it on screen. So I'm not promising, you know, my out-of-work friends jobs on the set <laughs> holding the boom or whatever just yet. But So what sort of changes do you expect them to make to the story? You know, one of the big ones, I think, is just the idea of having a world vast enough to sustain seasons of TV, you know? Right now, I think it's the microcosm of this family, you know, in the novel that they really focus on. And I think the novel turns pretty tragic in tone. I mean, there's sort of a funnier storyline with the brother. But the heart of the story for me was this this little girl, Ava, who gets really lost in uh, a very literal kind of a hell uh, in the, you know, the the swamp. So I don't think somehow I think um, that will be maybe uh, less the focus of a TV series. (laughs) And I think it'll the tone will shift, right? I think it'll be weighted maybe uh, more towards comedy than um, tragedy. Okay. And uh, what sort of consulting have you done? I mean, have you seen any scripts or are you? I have not even seen any scripts yet. I was in Berlin for 10 months last year, so I was completely out of the loop. But we had a couple conversations about, yeah, just the palette of the show and format and the degree to which South Florida would be kind of would it be, you know, a fictional, more fictionalized? Would it be, is it, would there be some way to kind of retain a couple different kinds of worlds, you know? So there's sort of Osceola has this very kind of dreamy, surreal quality to to those sections of the novel. Is there a way, a way to juxtapose that with like the grittier, tackier, goofier parts of South Florida? So uh, I, that was the kind of consulting I did, I guess, was sort of about, about tone and about um, how we might, broaden some of the storylines and character arcs so that they, that you could really sustain drama over time. What were you doing in Berlin? I was at the American Academy of Berlin, which is this sort of fabulous place. I was their lone fiction writer. Uh, it tends to be they have fellows come. You apply for these fellowships to do your project. And they, I don't know, they, they sort of wine and dine you and you get to live in this kind of academic hostel, I guess, at this beautiful house on the Vance. So where it, it almost felt too good. You know, I felt a little Hansel and Gretel or something. They were taking such good care of us. 
Um, and I, most, there's a composer, we had a composer, a visual artist, um, social scientists, historians of science, you know, um, political scientists. So it was, it was good. It was a little like being in college again or something, you know, multi-generational college. What's the literary scene there like, particularly as regards uh, sort of surreal kind of fiction? Yeah. I mean, I think they were into it. <laughs> I felt, uh, I felt, I don't know what it is in the water that, you know, I, I think there are, there are a couple precedents, right? The Grimm's brothers that come from that country. So they're sort of steeped in some pretty, they seemed receptive to some fairy tale infused, you know, surreal tales. Um, I, I felt pretty surprisingly happily, uh, understood, um, you know, that's not a given. I feel like the stuff I write is pretty whacked out. And I felt like for for <laughs> whatever historical and cultural reason that, that there was a good reception for that kind of thing there. Um, all right, so what I was... do you guys say about that? Do you consider, I mean, when people ask about spec fiction and bring up fairy tales, how do you, how do you guys class that? I never know. I mean, well, I would con- certainly consider uh, fairy tales to be fantasy stories, so... A lot of fantasy is actually just uh, sort of appropriating the elements of fairy tales with, uh, uh, but, you know, treating them in a more, you know, sort of modern uh, context or whatever. So, Right, right. You know, it's so I, I completely agree. And I've been rereading Dune, which I love that book so much. And I had forgotten that they as an as epigraphs scattered throughout the book, there are these kinds of like children's a, ch- a child's history, you know, these these fairy tales for kids about the contemporary history of this imaginary planet. Which I just, I you know, to route a, a fictional history of an imaginary place into like a future, you know, to to do it, it's a, it's sort of like a he's imagining a fairy tale of the future that has already that is contending with something that has already passed from history into myth, but it's all you know, it's already it's on this imaginary world. And I think it's just it's just so exciting to see that that kind of mirror of of the function that fairy tales play, you know, here. Um, so what inspired you to go back and reread Dune? You know, you go on the road with with books, and then everyone wants to know about your influences. And I was just thinking about how much I love that book. Something too about just yeah, it's such a ecological novel, and I feel like I've been reading so much about climate change and you know oil, you know energy crisis and this and that, and all of that is in Dune. It's it's a really prescient book in that way. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think you might ever write a big sprawling? futuristic epic like dune man i think i just think that's the dream it's sort of like you have to be extra brilliant to write a book about that to set up an entire you know socio-political you know to, to, to do the work of really reinventing all of these human systems in a future on a different planet i would i would love to be able to i mean you see the scale i'm working at with these short stories and that takes me forever um so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the the way my imagination works is quite matched to the scope of something like Dune, but it would be exciting to try, you know. You know, John and I, the first time we met you was at the New York Review of Science Fiction Reading Series. Right. And at that time, you said that you were working on this novel about a family of alligator wrestlers, and it was a total mess. You weren't, didn't know if you'd ever finish it. <laughs> so I thought, I thought it was funny to, just to see how, what a massive success that that book has gone on to be, given how... Uh, uh, how despondent I was at that moment yeah. oh my god I'm so glad I'm so glad that you guys remember that because I would say that was probably 
when was that? Like 2007 or something? Yeah. And that would have been like my Valley of the Shadow with Swamp Landy. I think that's when I was like, whatever. I'll just, you know, I was like, the subway ads were looking really tempting where you can get you can get certified to be a masseuse in six months. So I was like, <laughs> six months is soon. And then I'll have a career. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was having a hard time making the story to novel transition. Novels are scary, I think, because there's just no guarantee that you'll ever get to the end. Um, and they're so demanding. So I'm I'm trying to work on a second one now and and horrified that it's it's it seems even harder. That doesn't seem just. Well, yeah, you want to? I I understand the new novel. It's called The Land. It's just not that into you. <laughs> um, did I say that? That's funny. I don't. How <laughs> um, yeah, am I just to laugh at my own jokes that I forgot? I did. <laughs> It's <laughs> like the worst characteristic of a person. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to be such an asshole. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 I would. The other joke that I made too many times that really wasn't that funny was I was going to call it Drylandia because my sister said it was like my rebound book where I was going to go deep into the dustiest part of the past, you know, to escape the limbo space of Swamplandia. Yeah, and I think in a weird way, I mean, it's not. I guess it wouldn't be classed as science fiction, but it definitely feels like writing science fiction of the past to me or kind of having these sort of magical interventions in America's actual past. And that, but I mean, what Dune does, I think is, is um, by an order of magnitude more exciting than what I'm trying to do. Cause I still have a lot of bedrock, you know, that's in place to work with. I'm, I'm really working with diaries and kind of the actual, like a literal history of the Dust Bowl. Um, and so I'm, I'm not sort of like moving from the ground up to set up a whole cosmos that functions that, you know, and with, with its own government and its own customs and its own literature that I'm citing throughout, you know, it's not, not quite on that level. But I really do think that there's this, this way that writing historical fiction, writing science fiction is not, not so different. Well, uh, you, you, a lot of your stories seem to involve kind of um, pioneers and farmers and Oh. Yeah, yeah, I know. I have like this total farm fetishist. I think it's because I grew up in like mall culture of South Florida, you know? I, I like, I think the, the first husband I imagined for myself, I was like, I'm going to marry Charlie Brown and we'll live on a farm. That was my really, <laughs> my, the, the saddest fantasy. Um, but I mean, were you really six. into Little House on the Prairie or something? I or freaking had... love that stuff. I love that stuff. Anything about, oh yeah, Laura Ingalls Wilder. You know, part of it, too, I think it's like the way kids love orphan tales. Generally, there's something about being on a frontier. There's a kind of, you know, you, you crave autonomy so much when you're that age. And kids also, you know how kids just like naturally love animal stories and, and you know, just geek out over zoo creatures. And I, I somehow I think for me, like the farm represented both you know, self-sufficiency, autonomy, kids, you know, kids are always pretty big protagonists in those books because that's why they had kids then. You know, they were like, thank God, as soon as you can suit up, we need you to do some labor on this farm. Well, you mentioned that you kind of write whacked out stuff. And I guess for people who haven't read your short stories, do you want to just talk about some of those frontier stories and how you put this weird spin on them? Oh, sure. So I guess um, the first time I tried to do this, uh, I wanted to write, a, I was reading, I picked up at some like discard table, you know, women's histories of the the westward migration. And it was, it was completely, almost, it would be hilarious, you know, if they weren't so depressing, sort of like Wiley Coyote or something, because they were just, 
these really stoic accounts of a suffering that shocked me, you know, these women lost everything. They lost all their children. They lost their sisters to snake bite. They said goodbye to their families in the East for the rest of their lives and went on the Oklahoma, you know, um, you know, went out in the covered wagon. So I'm reading these diaries and I was thinking about, I had also been rereading that Borges story about the Minotaur. And so I just had this idea to write about a Minotaur father. He's sort of like a legend gone to seed, you know, in my, in my mind, he was just this mythical figure who he's sort of, he's, he's got a belly, you know, he's robust now. And, uh, he's retired from his like kind of rodeo days as this, um, this kind of American myth. And he, he wants to pull his family West. So I just thought that would be one way to, to kind of combine two myths, you know, to have this kind of mythic figure that everyone relates to the Minotaur and then really think about the myth of the West, like why, why that is remains so seductive. You know, and and also what about you know what, what's dangerous and to have this this kind of uncritical faith in your own abilities without any respect for your own limits or nature's limits, kind of a thing. And and as a kid, having to contend with that, so it's told from this kid's point of view. I think originally it was told from the Minotaur's point of view. The Minotaur was named Jax, and some in some draft it was it, it could have gone way wrong. I think even wronger than it arguably did. Well, but I mean, I really love I really love that story and. I think that it would appeal a lot to fantasy and science fiction fans. Do you have any sense of how much, how, to what extent fantasy and science fiction fans have found your work? You know, I'm not, a little bit. Like, io9 has been really supportive. Um, I was so excited to get to do that reading series that you guys uh, had me out, to, uh, that, that where we saw each other. <laughs> you didn't have me out there. <laughs> <Where> we... <laughs> I started thanking you for more and more things you didn't do as the show goes on. <laughs> that birthday party you, you all threw for me, I loved it. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I really sort of love folks who are like Chris Adrian or Kelly Link, who are kind of claimed by both camps, you know, the literary camp, and if, if there's such a thing, if, if those distinctions aren't totally effaced at this moment anyway. And I grew I was such a sci-fi fantasy kid, you know, so I, I always find it, you know, I was so excited to get to get to be asked to do this with you guys. You know, I, it, I think those streams are really feed my work as much or more than like, you know, Virginia Woolf or people who are, who, who are more, who tend to be, you know, associated with the canon or whatever. Well, I, I mean, I saw you say in an interview that you had a public-private reading split as a kid, where you would read Austin and the Brontes in public, and R.L. Stein and Frank Herbert in private. And yeah, yeah, isn't that a shame? I mean, I was the kind of nerd that wasn't even courageous. I mean, I wasn't even I couldn't even courageously claim my identity as a nerd. And um, I, you know, I and I wonder. I mean, that's probably even a little bit of a stretch. I'm sure that I was super private about everything I read, but especially. You know, I remember I love this Stephen R. Donaldson book. I love this book called The Mirror of Her Dreams. It's like a two book series. And it's this woman who, um, I forget the, the verb. He had some amazing verb for it, but she can, she uses mirrors to, to see other worlds. And then she can enter those other worlds, which is basically like, you know, a lot like writing. <laughs> so mm-hmm. sort of this really concrete way to think about creation and, and just, artist creation whatever and um she was just sort of this like mild-mannered brunette woman who who you could then travel to these worlds that she saw and so uh, for whatever reason that struck a chord with me (laughs) at the time and um i but i remember having to hide it from uh you know just being being so embarrassed like i like hot hot in the face embarrassed when somebody 
um, saw that I was reading that. Because I think, you know, there's something about, there is some stigma, I think, when you're, I don't know if you guys experienced that, but um, in Miami, there, there seemed to be a stigma if you were reading generally, that was suspicious enough. But certain of those covers, they're not doing you any favors, you know? There's like a, a book, some woman in front of a dragon on the cover of your book. Like, it, I think that had certain connotations, at least in my Miami high school, that I was eager to avoid. Well, actually, you know, John grew up in Florida. Uh, John, did you, uh, is there, what do you think about that? Is there more uh, more of that in Florida than, than elsewhere? Um, I mean, I can't speak to whether there's more anywhere else. I mean, because all, all I knew is growing up in Florida. Uh, and I mean, I, uh, I I never really felt like I had to hide uh, the sort of genre literature that I was reading. But on the other hand, I had also sort of, I, I had no choice but to embrace my uh, nerdiness uh, right from the get-go just because I was hopeless. There was no way I would be able to hide it. So I was, and, well, I yeah, see, if I had capitulated it with that kind of, you know, with that kind of wholeheartedness, then it kind of rebounds and you become cool, you know, because you, you own you own your aesthetic and your taste. But I, I wasn't I wasn't there yet. Just wasn't there yet. Were, were, Karen, were you always writing sort of the surreal, weird stuff? And did you did people try to force you to write more realistic fiction? Mm, yes. Yes and yes. I wrote sort of really terrible, earnest, it's high school, you know, I wrote whatever kind of like song lyric writing we were all writing then, where it's just actually like a spill of <laughs> shapeless emotion. <laughs> like, it's not even clear if, if there are characters or a setting. It's just like, just, just like an undiluted emotion that you're like spilling onto the page. So I did a lot of that. And I went to uh, Northwestern. I, I remember my first fiction class. I wrote some story about these two boys and like an albino parrot named Rufus or something. I don't even remember. I remember that I kept misspelling canon and also that the professor encouraged me to try writing a story about fully fledged adults. That was the comment. And not, you know, and it was funny because actually that story was probably realism, you know, for South Florida. It was not, like nothing wild happened. It was just like two kids, you know, went to like a parrot theme park, which you could easily do today in Miami. Did you say, sorry, did you say albino parrot? Uh, yeah, this cock, well, yeah. Okay, I thought yeah. you said albino carrot at first, and then you said that was realism. I was like, whoa, Florida is crazy. <laughs> that would be so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, that. that's kind of a beautiful image. Um, <laughs> let's never eat one if we see it. Um, Aren't those called parsnips? <laughs> <laughs> um, did you guys read Bonicula? Do you remember that great Bonicula joke about like the, the minion, the little kid was like, what's a minion? And they thought it was a miniature onion. <laughs> I think I like, you know, I think I tried to use that. I tried to deploy that in some fiction of my own, like, embarrassingly recently. And someone was like, oh, yeah, that's that joke from Bonicula. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm plagiarizing Bonicula at age 31. How cool. <laughs> but um, but so, so, this, so, so you did, you were sort of encouraged to write more realistic fiction. I mean... A, a fair amount of your output is fairly realistic. Uh, I, I think all of it is. I mean, I think arguably it's a really weird distinction for me to try to talk about because I think often it's not even, I don't know what to call it. It doesn't feel when I'm writing it like magical realist. Certainly I always associate that with a real particular moment in Latin American literature anyhow. But I will think it's sort of like magical thinking literature, you know, like magical thinking or wishful thinking or often like the, if it's fantasy, it's sort of some fantasy come to life, you know? So I have this one story, another kind of farm frontier story set in Nebraska in this new collection. 
and the monster or whatever, I just imagine there's this, this zombie homesteader who's been trying to prove up on his land for we don't even know how long, you know, in various forms for centuries possibly. And I was thinking of him just as kind of like an animated hope that has that has sort of outlived or outlasted any possibility of its fulfillment, right? But so I guess that's that's spec fiction because it's not often you you see like an undead homesteader in some spooky woods or whatever. I guess I guess one way that I the one thing I've started saying you guys tell me how this sounds because I never know how to talk about it in a way that feels true to what I how I think about how I think about it myself as I'm writing these stories is just that so one kind of realism you sacrifice not because you're going to write something that's you know so extraordinarily untrue or different than life as we experience it on this planet but just you're going to sacrifice a mimetic representational realism for uh, to tell another kind of truth, you know, or to get at some other kind of truth that is normally obscured or we're so inured to it on a regular Tuesday, we can't see it. And that's how I feel people that I really love, like Kelly Link's stories, impossible things happen in them, but it's always a way to, it's like an optical trick to let you see something that was invisible before you read the story, you know, something about something about our natures that you might not you might not be aware of if you were reading about the same plot set in a mall in New Jersey or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you mentioned that you have this new collection out. It's called Vampires in the Lemon Grove. And do you see it as uh, different? Do you see your stories changing in any way uh, between your first collection and this one? Yeah, I think so. I don't know that I'm even the best person to really weigh in on that in some ways, right? Because I'm stuck in my own dumb perspective. And I, I never feel that's kind of the sad thing about writing, right? As my friend was saying, it's sort of like you lock, you build a house and lock yourself out of it. <laughs> and then you know, I mean, you're really, you're like, Hey, how, how, how was it in the house? <laughs> you really can't experience it as a reader. Exactly. Would. Um, but I do think, I mean, in that the, I left Florida, so that felt like a conscious kind of striking out. And I think that was important in a way because if left to my own devices, my imagination always lists back to South Florida and it will, you know, for for better, for worse, the voice that I always feel comfortable channeling as some like completely bewildered adolescent. You mentioned that you sort of left Florida for this. I mean, for example, you went to Meiji era Japan and yeah, I was just wondering, yeah. and there's, there's so much detail in a lot of these settings. Just what sort of research process do you use when you're writing about some far away real place yeah. like that? I guess that that's another that that was a big difference. I think the first collection called St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, and I can't say that I really like hit the stacks to research that collection. I mean, I think some of those stories they really a lot of them really deal with with adolescence and with like a particular threshold, and um, a lot of them are set in some kind of whacked out Florida. And I, I know that you know that's a landscape that I know pretty well. A lot of those stories are contemporary, right? So it, it wasn't it wasn't as big of a a time traveling leap, and that does I think that's why it felt like writing science fiction because it is sort of you're doing this weird time travel to get back there. Um, so with that book, I I just read I, I you know I read about the the Meiji era in in Japan. There's a book called Factory Girls. I'm blanking on the author's name. You forgive me. All I can I can send it to you, but it was uh, just about this really strange moment when after 200 years of isolation, Matthew Perry shows up and they, they sign these unequal treaties with Japan, basically force them to trade and they're sort of shunted into the world of Western style capitalism and, um, you know, blue eyed foreigners flood their ports. And suddenly there's this really violent seismic period of industrialization 
where Japan is, is sort of trying to catch up with these, with the rest of the world, basically, and, and compete with them. And um, so I, I just, I had been reading, do you know that, did you hear about the book David Graeber had this, this book about debt? And there's a, sort of a horrifying section about female debt slavery. And I think that's where I first, there was some reference, you know, like a short reference to these silkworm workers in Meiji-era Japan. Well, wait, so what What were the real silkworm workers? I assume they're not, like, in your story. In um, my story, there are these girls that are, they drink a toxic tea and they're converted into kind of these hybrid silkworm slash women creatures. Um, I mean, that's sort of, that sounds so insane, but the, that's basically the trajectory for these these actual girls. People would, um, they were often recruited from rural areas and promised rural areas where they're, you know, they were the daughters of these tenant farmers who were in ter- terrible debt. And um, they were called female Dekasegi workers. You left your, you left your home and you went to these factories that were touted as these incredible places, you know, where the daughters of, of, of samurai and aristocrats also worked and you would learn a trade and you would be working on these, you know, Western style machines, you know, you would be trained on these new technologies and uh, the conditions were miserable in these factories. They, there's an argument that the birth of feminist consciousness in Japan begins at this moment because these women are, they, they bind together to revolt against these conditions, you know, that these sort of these factory protests and I mean, that in a completely female, you know, factory protest, because these places were riddled with tuberculosis. They they basically held the women hostage. They were essentially slaves in many cases, and they worked, you know, ten hour days. Eleven. And the, and the scary thing is, this isn't like, you know, some human rights horror story from the distant past that's not ongoing. I mean, I think that's the situation still today for a lot of textile workers. So that yeah, it was it, it's a it's a real horror story, you know, it's a real horror story, and I think to do that conversion and, and make it about some kind of monster metamorphosis where these women become these hybridized sort of animal machines, I think that in a way it was a way for me to think through what that must have felt like, you know, when these machines that that when they when production gets mechanized and suddenly time ceases to function the way it did before, you know, and this the factory workday is in place. And these women's bodies became cogs in this larger machine, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you mentioned, I mean, this this kind of feels like a horror story. And you mentioned your story proving up about the zombie homesteader kind of has a horror right. feel to it. Right. And also, even to me, um, your story, The Graveless Doll of Eric Mudis, kind of feels, it almost reminds me of Stephen King's The Body. Um, oh, thank you. What a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, were no. you, do you see the stories as horror stories? Was that something you were trying to experiment with? or? Yeah, I was excited to do, I think in some ways, so with the reeling for the Empire, one of the things that felt like a, a big risk or just a change for me was that story is not funny at all. Maybe there's one half of a joke in that story. And I think a lot of the St. Lucie stories and also Swamplandia, you know, sometimes I think it's so great to have comedy in there because it's a kind of humility or it's a relief or whatever. And I, it, so it felt tonally, that was interesting to really commit to horror as a tone, you know, and, and and to try to work a story where there's suspense, but the suspense that drives it is psychological, but also maybe maybe there's genre elements too, you know? That was a goal that I was like, I, I wonder if I could, you know, find a way to make um, something that's genuinely scary on one level and also engages with these like real life, you know, hi- historical horror stories. I mean, that to me... You know, I'm, the, the, one of the reasons I'm, I'm writing about the Dust Bowl drought now, and one of the reasons I know that 
that I love, or not love is the wrong verb, but it's, it's, it's interesting to me. It's just the horror story of like, how could you lose so much? How could they bear it? You know, like what, what was it that made them stay in this place? What made them commit to this particular future? When did their optimism kind of turn into delusion, you know? And, um, you know, the, the gravest fall of Eric Mutis, for me, I was just thinking about the way a haunting works, you know, like uh, that's a pretty shallow burial. There, there's a group of bullies and um, one day they find a scarecrow tied to a tree in a park, like an urban scarecrow. And they really don't, they don't, there's something familiar about it, but they can't quite put their finger on it. And someone remembers, oh, that's Eric Mutis. He's that kid, you know, he's this kid that we bullied, that we have, we had forgotten him so completely. And I just think um, that's when the ghost comes back, right? When there needs to be a reckoning with the past or when there's a something to be done or there was a really shallow burial that, that didn't function. Well, you mentioned uh, in Reeling for the Empire, are you making any kind of political statement, do you think, or in that or any of your other stories? I don't think that I ever sit down to write a story with a clear agenda in mind, you know, or, or some. I think if, if, if you have a statement that you can excise from your story, then maybe it should have been an op-ed, right? Or maybe the story is not the form for it if it's just sort of didactic or if there's only one, you know, if there's one statement. But I guess I did with that one, I was thinking a little bit about if you could argue that those girls, they have the kind of their class consciousness moment, right? I mean, there is this real revolt there where they, they, they alter the machine so that they can, I don't, I mean, I don't want to give it away, but they, um, there's a, there's a sort of a revolutionary energy, I hope, uh, to the end. And I guess, I, if, there, if, if there's a political statement, I think it's it's also connected to a, a statement about the, the character in that particular story. And it's just that she kind of finds a way to become an agent. You know, she's she's been sort of a passive victim and she's she's sort of been um, she's a part of a machine for most of the story. Um, and then she kind of recovers a sense of herself as a creator and an agent um, and revolts. And I so. But I don't know that that's, you know, <laughs> my Occupy Wall Street story or whatever. I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, like the story that you read when, when John and I went to the, the New York Review of Science Fiction reading series we mentioned, the story that you read that night was um, The Barn at the End of Our Term, which is about U.S. presidents being resurrected as horses. I mean, it's about the U.S. presidents. Is there any <laughs> politics in that at all? No, in that one especially not, I think. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. I wish that I could say that I'd written it during this election cycle and that it's a great allegory about Romney and Barack or something. But I think I was really just thinking about how mystifying, you know, how everyone sort of assumes that when we die, we're going to get an answer one way or the other, you know, well, you know, there'll be something or there'll be nothing, but definitely that's when, you know, one way or the other that we'll get some kind of answer. And I had read Kevin Brockmeyer. Do you guys know him? Mm, sure. He, I, I love his stuff. And he, he wrote that gorgeous spec fiction book, A Brief History of the Dead. And what I liked about it was just they all, everybody dies and goes through this kind of antechamber world where they're just scratching their heads and they're even more confused about, <laughs> you know, what the nature of reality is, what they're doing there, how their histories are going to affect their future in this weird place. So I think um, that was sort of the impulses. I, I was thinking about what a demotion it would feel like to someone, to a president, to find themselves in this weird stable in some Kentucky kind of an afterlife and the really human impulse, I think to take your, your past, whatever it is, you know, and try to use that to make sense of your present. 
and what a you know just the failure of that project in this particular afterlife. Well, when when you read that story, I thought it was really funny. You said that when it was published, that you felt like you had showed up to a party and you were the only one wearing a costume. <laughs> yeah, I really did. I still do. Um, <laughs> I still do a little bit. But that was that. I think that appeared in this Grant anthology for the best best young American novelist. And I will say. But that's a pretty scary auntie, isn't it? You know, if they're like, this is what we're going to call the collection, so give us a story. I was like, that's the scariest auntie in the world. And you didn't, you didn't actually even have, you weren't even technically a novelist at that point. No, right? I wasn't even a novelist. No, you guys met me at the, that was when I felt the most like the Bernie Madoff of fiction was at that moment <laughs> when we met. <laughs> that was when I was like, well, I've defrauded everyone. I'm not even a novelist. The story that's going forward to represent me to the world is this one about a bunch of presidents reincarnated as horses. Um, it, <laughs> that was that was a, a shameful time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, most of the time when people meet us, that's basically the lowest point of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> it's the E.T. Hollywood story. Everything's in black and white. Like, <laughs> David and John are always in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> There's always like a really sad, like minor key chord being played when they're around. <laughs> uh, so, are there any interesting behind the scenes stories about how you came up with any of the pieces in the book? So, there's one The Seagull Army Descends on Strong Beach, 1979. I don't even know if this is so interesting, but I, I wanted to write a story about. Um, I had read this essay by Andre Asaman called Mnemonic Arbitrage, and I was just thinking about that feeling that I think is, I think it's, I hope it's pretty universal that your life has been knocked off the rails or that, you know, there's, there's sort of an incremental, but widening gap between where you are and where you think you ought to be. You know, that, ter that terrible kind of inertia where you're like, I got knocked a little off course and I can't correct for it. And I'm really, I'm not going to be able to realign with the path that I thought was my life kind of a feeling. And I, I, the way, for whatever reason, what I, the way I, my brain, chose to, you know, the, the image that it found for this was just a boy who's haunted by the notion that there's a flock of seagulls. I, I was probably listening to that terrible band. Um, they're not that terrible. That a flock of seagulls. Hmm. Uh, they're these like cos cosmic scavengers and they fly into the future and they're just sort of willy-nilly stealing little bits of people's futures and bringing them back to feather this nest in the present. You know, so just just tiny. And I was thinking just the way you would like pull a vertebra out of a spine or something, you know, and then one, one kind of your, you know, your future changes shape or it's deformed. It's sort of that butterfly and whatever butterfly in Africa, you know, it's deformed in a way that's, that's irrecoverable. So I thought that was kind of a scary idea. And I was talking to my brother and telling him the idea for the story. And I was like, what though, what could the seagulls bring back from the future that would really, or what could he, what could the boy imagine they're bringing back from the future that would alter a life permanently in a really catastrophic way. And he was like, mm, uh, ladies, birth control pills. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that that's going to go. And then the one that I liked the best was, um, remember when 3-6 Mafia won the Grammy? He was like, what if they bring 3-6, this was right around the time I was writing this story, like 3-6 Mafia's Grammy. <laughs> I sort of still wish that that <laughs> like sometimes I, I really wish that you could just write the parody of whatever you're writing it'd probably be better in some ways you know so are, are uh, other it sounds like maybe other people are a big part of your creative process that you bounce ideas off of your friends and siblings and stuff like that uh, I just like to tell people 
what I'm up to so I can watch them, you know, watch their faces change and then hear them be like, I'll buy you a beer. I mean, <laughs> I think my, my siblings are, my siblings are cause they veto stuff all the time. And, um, my, I had a good friend who helped me with a lot of the, the stories in this collection on this go round, but I sort of try to keep it tight for a while because I think, do you guys find that there's usually kind of like a, just like a vulnerable stage where it, it, it can be harmful to, you know, you, you don't, I, I sometimes I think I, if you let people read stuff too early, that, that can deform the thing that you're making in some ways. Well, um, actually, speaking of vetoing ideas, I swear you told this story. Were you the one who told this story where you, you had this great idea for a story and you described it to a friend and they said, Karen, that's the plot of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective? <laughs> that happens all the time. That, that's like when I plagiarized Benicula in my own book. That happens all the time. It's really scary. <laughs> I know I really had yeah, that with my mom. I was like, what if there was a kidnapper, but they're holding a dog hostage? He <laughs> was like, that's definitely, definitely a Jim Carrey movie. Um, my brother also made me really mad once. I was telling him about Swamp Landy and like these two storylines and how they were going to intersect. And without looking up from his sandwich, he was like, yeah, that's like Big Bird Goes Home. Remember when, <laughs> when it like happened Sesame Street and happened in the real world? <laughs> like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> it hit really close to home. I was like, did I just borrow the narrative model of Big Bird Goes Home? And arguably, I did. <laughs> Well, what do you think, Karen, about endings? Uh, some of the Amazon reviews, they feel like your endings aren't resolved to, to their satisfaction. Is that something that you that you think about? Can I tell you a funny story about endings really fast? My yeah. grandfather, who's now passed away, I had this story um, in the in the New Yorker about these boys who they land on a glacier. And um, my grandfather read the story online, and then he called me. And he was like, pretty good story, pretty crazy. And those sneaky bastards, you got to buy the magazine to find out how it ends. <laughs> and I was like, no, Papa, that is the end. That's the end. And there was like this long silence. He was like, what kind of ending is that? So I can sympathize with those reviewers. I, I mean, I can understand the frustration where sometimes you want you want a, a different kind of answer. I, I try to find sort of, there'll be like a, an image that I feel like gathers up some of the questions in the story. You know, and I think that's always more interesting than to pretend that, you know, is he going to kiss the girl? Did they find the gold? Like I sort of, whatever the animating questions were, you know, I, I, if if you if you hit on like a, a turn of phrase or an image or something where that, where you can strike those resonances, that's what I always feel most comfortable about exiting a story, kind of on a plateau. And I love, for whatever reason, I do really love ambivalent endings. And I think I was just talking about this uh, with a friend who she does these paintings and she'll she's she always says untitled and then she'll put a title in parentheses which i was telling her was kind of passive aggressive <laughs> and she said yeah it is but her argument i guess it's it's similar to why i think that feels often like the right place to exit a story because she says sometimes people she doesn't like it when a viewer sees her painting reads the title and decides that they got it you know mm. that they got it and they can just move on they, you know, what I, that they're like, oh, okay, so that was the message. Or sort of like you were saying, like, well, okay, that was uh, the political statement, so check, check on the box. She's like, I really want them to be haunted, you know, or I want it to have a life in their body that continues even when they've moved on, you know, when they're not standing in front of it anymore. And, um, you know, I, I sort of, I would sort of agree. Like, I think some of my favorite endings, nothing is resolved, but there's a feeling that things are opening out, you know, or you're, or that some something's been gonged inside of you, or you're, you know, something that you you are now going to be haunted by, 
by those same questions or by that character state or whatever. Actually, you know, I, I took a creative writing class at USC with T.C. Boyle, and he has this story I love called Tooth and Claw, where the last scene is a, a character steps into a room that may or may not contain a dangerous feline, and so you don't know uh, if he dies or not at the end. And he said he went to an elementary school, and they had read the story, and they all complained about the ending. And he says, well, if you don't like that ending, you, you can just add one sentence. And then I died. <laughs> yeah, right. I sort of love that. In a, I teach, I teach too, right? And I'll get um, student manuscripts where you can just, it's like, you know, Hunter S. Thompson style. Like the scale is so weird. We've got like three pages of a dinner, and then in the last page, you know, the house catches a blaze in one paragraph. You know, it's like triple homicide. I'm like, my goodness. <laughs> uh, and I think that that, you know, that's sort of maybe not the real ending, right? Maybe that that's not the re- that that isn't actually the resolution. Well, wait, I can um, think of one story of yours that has a very definite conclusion. Uh, you have a story that goes, once there were a bunch of unicorns, then a flood came. <laughs> I, that's always so, I, did I, I must have said that at some point, right? That I, that I, those were the first stories I wrote. It would always be like, stable, some stable, peaceful context, and like this like valley of like magical bears or whatever, and then like a comet would hit them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't think it's I really truly don't think I it's gotten so much more sophisticated sad <laughs> I was it's so funny you bring that up because I was just having lunch with a friend she has a nine-year-old niece and we were talking about how like this nine-year-old idea of the plot I was like gosh I should borrow a page from her playbook because it sounded so clear you know she was like let's play writer do you want to do princess Mary's prince do you want to do rich person falls in love with poor person? Do you want to do war? <laughs> like, man, I do want to do all of those plots. <laughs> it, it, it sounds so liberating. I think one of the nice things about literary writers doing genres sometimes is you have kind of, if there are genre conventions, it's so fun. Like what you were asking about horror, like just the sort of the scarecrow story. It was so fun for me to write that particular story because I, you know, kind of how the rules work. There's in a horror story, there's going to be something's gone awry. It's mysterious. There's, you know, someone is, is complicit. Um, in this case, this one bully is sort of scapegoated by his friends and he sort of becomes the scarecrow and the strange substitution, but also just there's a trajectory of kind of escalating dread and you can, you can follow that, you know, you can hold on to that. You sort of have, um, you have like an exoskeleton. I think genre can give you kind of a, or just a skeleton. It doesn't have to be a. <laughs> well, since we're science fiction fans, we like exoskeletons. You know. <laughs> that was such a good cartoon. Did you guys ever see that? <laughs> Exosquad? Uh, yeah. It's fine cool. if you didn't. It's fine if you didn't. I went even further than you guys could follow me there. I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, actually, that's why I had to keep it quiet in high school. All right, well, this is an important question. So uh, you said in an interview that you had done so much research on alligator wrestling that you felt like you, you could take on an actual alligator. So if an alligator <laughs> were to attack right now, how would you fight? Oh, what would I do? Oh, my God. Well, I think I lied when I said that. I would scream. I would scream <laughs> like a woman and stand on the table. Um, you know, the, the trick is that if you, if you can get their jaws closed, the musculature of their jaw by some weird evolutionary fluke, is really it can come down with the force of a guillotine but they can't open it again so you can hold them shut with like a scrunchie um but i don't know i am which I, I like when we get all these lawsuits people are like it's not true <laughs> um so, what karen russell fan mauled in 
freak alligator wrestling. <laughs> yeah. And they just have like a goody elastic and they're like, it, it didn't work though. They're horrors. The gator like easily opens his jaws and like bites their hand. Um, yeah, I wonder what I would do if it came in right now. See, it's sort of like, remember when you would study so hard for like European AP exam? And then, and now who knows what any of those battles were? I think that's how I feel about alligator wrestling mm-hmm. at this moment. Well, I mean, you, a while back you mentioned humor in your stories, and a lot of these stories, they do have really funny lines in them. And I guess I was just wondering, are you sort of laughing to yourself as you're writing the stories? Do you feel oh, like you have to... Oh, would that be terrifying? No, of course <laughs> not. How scary would that be if I was just sitting alone laughing <laughs> in a room? <laughs> that, that's the path of madness. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Um, I heard that Flannery O'Connor cracked yourself up, which I like the picture too. It's funny, you know, I don't think somehow I think Vampires and Lemon Grove, the new collection is, it's a, it's a little more sedate in some ways, humor-wise. I think just because some of the stories really commit to darkness uh, in a different way, you know, it's sort of, there's a lot more earnest darkness here, maybe. Uh, but, but you do have also the Dougbert Shackleton's um, Antarctic oh, that's well, I was glad to have that in there, even though I think that's, it's a story about underdogs, and I'm sure it's the underdog of the collection, you know, like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's truly such a ridiculous it's the story. Krill, it's you the know what I did laugh when I, which is because the, the, the end line there is something like, we munch and munch, and da 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 and I was just laughing with my friend. He was like, that's, that's the end line of the story. We munch and munch, <laughs> the most extraordinary kind of science. And I think it's just, I used to love those. I love those kinds of epics too, right? Like Antarctic epics. Jim Shepard's a writer who I love a lot and he'll do he'll do a very a straight kind of a version of this tale, you know, where some explorer motivated by ego kind of, you know, whatever hubristic forces motivated those those explorers in addition to kind of a hope for just to discover new territories and et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, how that kind of willful blindness that led them to be drinking tea on the ice flows. And I was just thinking about the the men in my family, just like their love of these like underdog sports teams. Like if they love a team, like my brother's a hockey fan in Miami and he loves the Panthers and the perversity of that. I, I mean, it's a, I just think that says a lot about my brother. Um, just this really perverse and undying loyalty. And I thought, in, there's so many kind of dark looks at that in this collection with that kind of optimism, like this is going to be your team season, you know, or, the, or this is going to be the year that we have a bumper crop of wheat on our Nebraska farm or, you know, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be a hero in these ways. I just thought it'd be nicer to have a lighter. The density of that story is, is a little lighter than some of the other ones. Well, the the premise, I guess we should say, just for people who haven't read it, is just that there's there are fans who go down to the South Pole to root for different kinds of marine life, and the right. main character he right. roots for the krill, and the krill never win this contest against the baleen whales. No, and they stuff never like that. will. They never will. It's yeah, it's the food chain games. But you know, there are there's like franchises that are just not gonna not gonna win for you. Um, but I thought, you know, I just like that idea of like putting yourself at incredible personal risk or just yeah just casting your lots with this kind of microscopic loser creature (laughs) it's just like the world's oldest loser i really think that i'm not that funny in person i I go for like a 70 30 ratio i just keep throwing stuff out there i'm like 70 30 (laughs) is pretty good and in writing i think uh even less so you know it's, it's it's really hard have you guys had that experience? Sometimes if you read someone who's really trying to be funny, it feels like being tickled. You know, it's it's a 
it feels violent and kind of aggressive. <laughs> um, okay, well, I wasn't so. going to bring this up, but we we asked for questions online, you know, oh. <laughs> questions we should ask you. And somebody okay. on Twitter wanted us to ask if you're ticklish. <laughs> I am really ticklish. <laughs> Are you guys going to attack me outside this building? Is there going to be like, oh, if there, I swear to God, if some masked tickler tickles me now, I'll be so upset. <laughs> I was just like that was the, that was the one. Just some man, if some man in like a dirty Elmo costume comes up to me on the A train and starts to tickle me, I'll be like, "Fuck you, John! God damn it!" <laughs> that was the one question. Why was I honest? That was the only question anybody asked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that a, like is that oh, a reference man. to anything, or is that just they just? Like, is that just totally random? No, I'm telling you, that's what's going to happen. Someone's <laughs> plotting someone's plotting a cruel attack. <laughs> no, I'm super ticklish. It's really embarrassing at those airport checkpoints. <laughs> Everyone's always like, just go ahead. Just freaking go ahead. You're scaring us. <laughs> I can't believe that's the only question. I'm sad. I'm like, nobody, nobody wanted to know about, I don't know, the ratio of fantastic to naturalistic detail or... <laughs> Well, to be fair, uh, we don't actually get all that many responses when we say, "Hey, we're going to interview so and so. What questions do we want us to ask?" I mean, we don't we don't get a whole lot of people uh, uh, offering up questions, or, or certainly not good ones. Um, it's very very infrequently that they actually make it onto the show. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is that just trying to research you, I couldn't find any like website or blog or Twitter or anything like that. Do you have any kind of online presence? Nope. <laughs> isn't isn't that um wonderful? I'm 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 sort of so socially anxious generally that I just the idea of maintaining a Twitter anything. Yeah, I can't. I'm also like ninety years old secretly, so I can't even use that language. I'm like, Kent, <laughs> did anyone tweet or retweet about me? You know, I just don't even um really know what's going on over there. I mean, is there a way for people to send you fan mail? Do you get fan mail? I don't know. I mean, Oh, I would hear you guys. I have to go in a second. I'm so sorry. I thought I had more time, but I'm in the random house building because oh. I don't have a landline. And oh. I guess I need I need to go yeah. kind of soon. Oh, yeah, no problem. I'm sorry. I, as I promised you, I'm like, we could talk till seven. <laughs> Let's watch TV together on the phone. They have a plan. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I don't know if there's a way to send Is there a way to send me fan mail? You could send it if you send it to Random House, then you can. But don't people don't have to do that. They've got better things going. They, they, <laughs> they should write their real moms or something. <laughs> All right, cool. So, Karen, uh, thanks uh, for uh, you know, giving us so much Thank time you. for the interview. Thank you. It was so fun. It was so fun. <laughs> I can't wait to see you at a at another critically low moment in my confidence <laughs> in life. <laughs> right, well, really, you. thank you. This, this was super fun. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Karen Russell for joining us on the show. So as you probably gathered, Karen comes up with some pretty weird ideas. And that just sort of got me thinking about the role of weirdness in fiction and wondering what are some of the all-time weirdest stories. So that's going to be our panel topic for today. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Lynn M. Thomas. She works at Northern Illinois University as the curator of rare books and special collections, which includes the papers of over 60 fantasy and science fiction authors. She's also the editor of Apex Magazine, as well as the books Chicks Dig Time Lords, Chicks Dig Comics, and Whedonistas, which collect essays on Doctor Who, comics, and Joss Whedon written by women. And she also co-hosts the SF Squeecast, 
which won the 2012 Hugo Award for Best Fan Podcast, as well as Verity, a Doctor Who podcast. So, Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. And so I, um, just before we recorded this, I put together this list of 10 features that tend to make a story feel really weird to me. And I'm hoping we can work through all of them in the course of this conversation. But so just to start out with the, the first one, I think really obviously a story can just seem weird if there are fantasy and science fiction elements in it, such as dragons and vampires and time travel and all sorts of things like that. And I think a lot of us fantasy and science fiction fans, we get into fantasy and science fiction because we are attracted to weirdness. But as Karen Russell's fiction shows, the fantasy and science fiction publications certainly don't have a monopoly on weirdness. And so I think the first thing I just kind of want to talk about is sort of what is the place of fantasy and science fiction in weirdness? Uh, like in preparation for this, I was going through the stuff that I'd published in Lightspeed and I was looking to see, oh, well, what, what's the weirdest stuff that I published? And I actually had a hard time coming up with a, with a very long list of weird things. And I was thinking like, oh, well, my, my taste doesn't run towards the weird too much. But, you know, of course, that's me saying that, you know, somebody who's uh, spent all his whole life reading science fiction and fantasy stuff. So it's all going to be depending on your point of view. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to come up with uh, with, the, with the stories that we're going to mention on this episode that we think are are very weird uh, to people who are less versed in this stuff. They're going to think that like, oh, well, geez, that I would have never even conceived of something like that. I don't even understand what you're talking about. I, I need like I need some uh, I need some experience with this stuff before I can even uh, engage with that. I think there's sort of a, a distinction that has to be made before between objectively weird things and subjectively weird things that I think the more familiar you are with something, the less weird it seems. I sort of wonder, because so many of these fantasy tropes are so familiar to us, do things that are actually objectively less weird seem more original to us or seem weirder to us? Because I think a lot of people would regard sort of the um, the urban fantasy, uh, the sort of surreal kind of stories like Karen Russell, like to us, I think that seems pretty weird. They're like, oh, this is, I haven't read some, you know, I haven't read as much stuff exactly like this before. But is it really as weird as is it? Is it any more weird than Lord of the Rings? Part of the issue is that we're talking just about sort of the tropes and, and the the story elements. And for me, a lot of the time, what makes something weird is not just the elements in the story themselves, but the execution of them. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's linguistically weird. Sometimes it's linguistically complex in ways that don't toss you out out of the story, but they sort of force you to approach. Um, things as you're reading a little differently in order to kind of parse together the tropes that are being presented. Yeah, actually, uh, that reminds me like one of, one of the weirdest uh, novels I can remember trying to read. I didn't, I, I couldn't actually read it because it was too weird for me, but there's a book called Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban and it's a post-apocalyptic novel, but it's written entirely in this made up dialect because it's set many years after the fall where humanity has sort of forgotten the way we speak now. And so it's written in this completely alien dialect. And that, I mean, a lot of people like really think it's a work of genius. And, um, and so when I, when I discovered it, I was really excited to read it, but it was like, it's way too much work for me. Uh, I don't, I don't, I, I couldn't actually imagine reading that whole book. I mean, I, let alone a short story, uh, written that way, but, um, yeah, a whole book, I, I there's no way I was going to make it through it. Um, I mean, which of course brings to mind a clockwork orange as well, which is also written in that kind of style. But, um, I think Ridley Walker actually takes it to even a further degree than that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and there certainly are. I mean, Lynn was saying that there are books that the language is weird, but it doesn't throw you completely out of the story. But there are certain examples where the language is so weird that it throws you out of the story, or at least it takes an enormous amount of effort to to sort out what's going on. And mm-hmm. you don't actually, a lot of times you can't actually tell just on a basic literal level what's happening, what's being described by the words. But that can, you know, I was about to make a Proust joke because um, I was a French major in college and I had that I had that experience reading Proust in the original French, too. It's not sort of exclusive to SF, so. Uh-huh. Well, it's funny, actually, you know, we asked for suggestions for weird things that we should mention uh, in this discussion from our listeners. And one person said anything French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me that I like weird stories to have some sort of logical understructure to them. And it may not be apparent at first, but if it's just like a Mad Libs thing where, you know, everything <laughs> just seems completely random, it's, it's you know, I rode my fish to school or something. It's, you know, that I, I like there to be some some underlying pattern that and that I as a reader am supposed to puzzle that out. I mean, Karen was talking in her stories, you know, that she, she for example, would make uh, the women in the factory turn into these sort of monsters that spin the industrial products. And that, that makes, it's not arbitrary, right? That makes a certain thematic sense or metaphorical sense. Or even like the example I kind of, I kind of like is, uh, the first scene of the matrix where you just see a woman being chased by these creepy government agents. And then she runs to answer a phone right before they crash a truck into it. And you're like, man, this is really weird. Like what the mm-hmm. heck is going on? This doesn't seem to make any sense, but you, you have the confidence that the more of the story that unfolds, that there is some underlying order to all this stuff. And even if that underlying order is never revealed in the story, I always like it a lot more when I at least have the illusion that there's some secret to be figured out here. In contrast to, say, like Law, the TV show Lost, where I always have this feeling like it's just one weird thing after another after another. And when when all the cards are on the table, it's going to turn out to just be a, you know, uh, a, a hand that's not worth anything. Well, I think that that you're spot on in the sense that um, the best stories have thematics that work with the things that are being used to sort of bolster and expand and describe the theme that you're going for. Because the idea is that you want all of the aspects of the story that you're telling to reflect the story you're trying to tell. So a couple of stories in Apex that I had planned to bring to talk about do that. Um, Armless Maidens of the American West by Genevieve Valentine is one of my favorite weird stories. Um, she's written it in second person, which, um, one of the biggest co- sets of comments that we got when the first, when the story first came out was, why is this second person? And it's because it's a story about a graduate student who's going out to observe the phenomenon of Armless Maidens of the American West. So you need that sort of additional distance that you can't quite get with first person or third. Um, it, it sort of others you from the space of the story just enough to make you disconcerted. And the the armless maidens themselves are all examples of women who've been basically brutalized in some way or another in their lives. And it's this sort of anthropological study of that, beautifully told in second person. But it's all it all fits the thematic frame of these women that have been mutilated and a story that to a certain degree has been mutilated linguistically because she chose to tell it in second person. So that's one example. Um, uh, before actually, before you go on, I, I just, I'll just say quickly. Yeah. I think a lot of people find second person, uh, just inherently weird <laughs> point well, of view yeah. and present and especially even future. I mean, mm-hmm. like Ted Chang's story, um, story of your life is 
future, uh, second person future tense. Yeah. And that's just instantly, you know, you read the first sentence, you're like, well, mm-hmm. this, is, this, is, this is getting weird. Ex- this is again where execution comes in because if you don't execute it well, you're writing a choose your own adventure book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually, speaking of choose your own adventure, uh, I actually published a story in Fantasy Magazine uh, called Choose Your Own Adventure by Cat Howard. And I-, I guess that's actually a fairly weird story now that mm-hmm. you mention it because uh, it's it's kind of like a choose your own adventure story, except that it's like a metafictional thing as well. So and just kind of a spoiler, but um, as you read the story, eventually like it starts off like as it's basically like a choose your own adventure story but of course you're intended to actually read the whole story in in chronological order as you would a regular story not a, rather than a choose your own adventure which you would which would cause you to skip around um but then so at some point in the story the the fourth wall breaks and the narrator addresses you the reader and says and 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 basically calls you out for having read all of the sections in order it's like you've been reading all of the sections haven't you you know and uh so i mean that, i guess that's a pretty weird thing and i guess um I guess most stories that have that metafictional aspect to them uh, do come off as ending as being pretty weird. Well, that that sort of reminds me of one of the weirdest stories I have on my list is Stephen King's Ballad of the Flexible Bullet. Uh, an editor, I, I think, gets a letter from a writer who explains how these he's discovered the truth that these invisible elves write all his stories on his typewriter and he has to feed them peanut butter and stuff like that. And that was the first one of the first stories I listened to as an as an, sort of an audio book. And I honestly felt like I was losing my mind. Like the more, <laughs> the, the longer the story goes on, it, it, you just feel like you're going crazy and you feel like maybe these, these little elves are real. And I think that that's the, uh, the ultimate effect of a weird story is if it makes you start to wonder if, sort of wonder at the back of your mind if any of this crazy stuff is true and feel like you're going insane. Um, actually, as far as Stephen King goes, I mean, you could pick a lot of his stories as being pretty weird, but. One of one of my favorites of his that's actually really weird when you think about it is his story Trucks, which was adapted into the horrible movie Maximum Overdrive. But uh, let's forget about that. Um, <laughs> but Trucks, I mean, Trucks is a, a story about trucks becoming sentient. And I mean, it sounds kind of stupid and weird when you just say it. But oh, man, that is a great story. I mean, it's just like there's no way that it should be awesome but it's all about the execution and how well he did it because i mean he it really it's it's a great story um well let's talk about some i mean another thing i have on here is what i would what i call sort of extreme fantasy elements like the example i have here is ben rosenbaum's story about an orange that becomes president mm-hmm. where this is beyond even you know something like a dragon or cars driving around are um you know, sort of impossible, but in a magical kind of way, they're still, they still seem possible in a literal reality. But there's a whole class of, of, of sort of surreal stories that they, they require a total abrogation of all the laws of logic and things to, to take place at all. <laughs> I mean, I have, there's this story by Edgar Carrot called Fatso, where uh, a guy has a girlfriend and she just, dis- you know, she just, uh, retreats into her bedroom between a couple hours every night and he doesn't know why and he eventually discovers that she just turns into a fat hairy guy uh (laughs) every night and a lot of these stories but they they take place in a in a sort of world where these things are normal i think that's one characteristic of a lot of really weird stories is that people don't react all these really weird things happen but people just treat them as if they're normal i guess that's that's sort of one of the dividing lines people would draw sometimes between fantasy and magical realism or more surrealism this the the disjunction there often seems to me to be how do the characters react in a 
psychologically realistic way or in a sort of uh, metaphorical way or they just treat the things as normal? Most of my favorite examples of these are, are on television. Um, the Muppets um, is, is a really good standard example of sort of how surrealism can happen around a very plausible, emotional-centric character being Kermit. You know, Kermit just kind of wanders around and is exasperated as all of these manic things. And, and you know, there's singing fish and, and, <laughs> and you know, things exploding and, and, you know, animal eating everything in sight. And, you know, he's, he's engaged to a pig. And none of this seems <laughs> to faze him. The, the other examples, um, there's a couple of cartoons that do this really, really well. Um, Adventure Time on Cartoon Network is a really great example of this. You have um, Finn the dog and Jake the human and they go on adventures and they just, it's sort of like every 15 minute, a half episode, they're sort of like, okay, I need you to bring these magical seeds to the land of candy where they can grow more candy. And they go off to the land of candy and the lemons are trying to kill everyone. And... It's just, it makes no sense at all. And they're just kind of wandering around going, this is the awesomest thing ever. Well, yeah, I think a lot of, like, a lot of the cartoons are super weird, like those Warner Brothers cartoons. There was one about this family, and they have this really annoying dog, and they're trying to get rid of it, and it keeps just coming back in mm -hmm. completely impossible ways. I used to have nightmares about that. It just <laughs> freaked me out so much. Um, uh, yeah, actually, and, um, and I was thinking of, like, SpongeBob SquarePants. I mean, that's a yeah. really weird show. Uh, but it, it is actually kind of funny. When you when you started talking about the cartoons, I was thinking, like, you know, I, I immediately thought of SpongeBob as well. And I was thinking, mm -hmm. geez, it's like what we're talking about as as uh, the literature we're talking about is, like, not nearly as weird as most of this stuff that we were that, you know, is intended for children. It's like mm -hmm. some of that stuff is so bizarre. <laughs> But there's, there, I think there's weirdness all over the place that you don't even think about. Like Mike Resnick said once that that science fiction and fantasy requires the second most suspension of disbelief, and that the genre that actually requires the most suspension of disbelief is the musical, because you just <laughs> have these people and then they all just burst out burst into this in choreographed song. dance song number, mm -hmm. and we just, I don't know, you're just raised watching movies like this. You're like, oh yeah, they're singing, but when you really think about it, like, wow, this is super, super weird. Yeah, I, I saw uh, someone pointed out recently uh, that the, the one guy in Tangled uh, is like the most clever guy in all of Disney, all, of all the Disney characters, because he's the only one that ever noticed that it was weird that everyone started singing. Well, I guess, I mean, one thing I wanted to talk about is people will say that truth is stranger than fiction. And whenever people say that, I'm kind of like, like, really? Is that really true? I mean, is, is it stranger than Alice in Wonderland or something? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's because that's pretty strange. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Is truth stranger than fiction? I mean, I don't think uh, as a general rule that it is. Uh, certainly there are there are times when something that really happens, uh, what, you know, makes people say stuff like that just because something that happened happened to be really weird. But I mean, obviously, because you can make up anything that you can imagine, obviously, there's going to be plenty of stuff in fiction that's going to be way stranger than truth could ever be. Yeah, I think that, you know, certain pockets of truth come across as being stranger than fiction. But a lot of that is just because, frankly, fiction has structure to it. Typically, fiction has a narrative, a narrative through line of some sort and thematics that all go together. And bits and pieces of the story are all designed to fit together like, the, like a puzzle to give you sort of a complete view when you're done of the experience of the story that you read and life is too messy and doesn't work that way um so in that sense i think you know truth in real life is stranger than fiction because it's full of a lot more non sequiturs a lot more things that just don't seem to fit things that happen at random 
uh, in a way that, um, you know, that fiction really, you know, there are, there are random things that happen to people in real life where if you placed those random things into the confines of a fictional story, readers would complain that they were kicked out of the story because that wasn't quote unquote realistic for that level of serendipity to happen. Mm-hmm. Especially if that level of random serendipity didn't fit the structure of the actual full story. Yeah, no, it occurred to me, I have on my list here that, that too much randomness or too much coincidence both make a story difficult for an audience to accept. But there, there's sort of the sweet spot in the middle that the fiction is, is, is often obligated to stick to, whereas reality's not. But I still think that Alice in Wonderland is stranger than most things that would actually happen that are, that are part of people's everyday experiences. Um, I mean, the one exception to that, that that would really occur to me is something like quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a famous quote about quantum mechanics that it's not only stranger than we suppose, but stranger than we can suppose. And I think that's an interesting idea that fiction being a product of the human imagination is, is sort of by nature comprehensible to humans, whereas there's no guarantee that, you know, the deep structure of the universe may actually be beyond human comprehension which would make it actually weirder than <laughs> than fiction, right? We're not at the point where we have the ling- the linguistic capability to communicate all of that stuff in an effective way that which is what makes it so difficult. I mean, one of the reasons we tell each other stories, you know, is to have ways of explaining how the world works to one another. I mean, this is where a lot of our mythology comes from, a lot of our folk tales and cont- and stories that are passed along from person to person. They, you know, they, a lot of those stories originally came out of an effort to explain how the world works. Well, when the way the world or the universe works is that vast, that random, and that complicated, as opposed to, you know, telling a story about how, you know, Apollo drives his chariot across the sky to make the sun move. <laughs> um, you know, it's just a, an, a, it's a difference of scale that is completely challenging to, actually get across from from where we start to where that ends yeah I, I think that's a really interesting point is is the fundamental purpose of storytelling to make sense of things and if storytelling is an inherently making sense of things sort of project then that's fundamentally at odds with unrestrained weirdness right well, it doesn't have to be because weirdness can be used as a metaphor for things like difference, or it can be used as a way of encouraging new perspectives. It's an opportunity to stretch your understanding in a direction that it wasn't going already, which then gives you the capacity to understand more. No, I I totally agree with that. I actually have a a thing I go on sometimes about what's the value of weird fiction. And the the metaphor I like to use is that it's like, it's like you say, it's like mental flexibility that you might compare to physical flexibility. And so if you're really physically flexible, you could put your foot behind your head and people would might look at that and say, what's the use of being able to put your foot behind your head? That's not good for anything. But the point, of course, is that if you're flexible enough to put your foot behind your head, you're flexible enough to not hurt yourself walking up the stairs or whatever. And I think it's a similar theory, thing reading fantasy mm-hmm. literature and weird fiction that if you can imagine uh, all this weird stuff that we've been talking about, you know, you're not going to hurt yourself trying to imagine something that is weird, but may very well be useful or, or possible. So I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you on the value of, of weird fiction and the usefulness of metaphors in these things. But I do think that maybe 
you know, <laughs> that, that, as we're saying, the universe is not obligated to make sense in a way that maybe stories at some minimal level are. Um, uh, but an, an, another thing I kind of wanted to talk about is I, I just think there's a lot about real life. You know, we're saying that dragons and things like this, they're pretty weird ideas, but they come to seem not weird because they're so familiar. But it just seems like there's a lot of weird stuff about everyday life. It's really, really weird, but we're so used to it, we don't even think about it. If you think about it, like, where did I come from, right? Like, my parents had sex, and a microscopic sperm and egg combined, and in nine months that grew into me. And if someone just presented that to me as a new idea, I would say I don't find that plausible at all, <laughs> right? But the, I mean, the circumstantial evidence is pretty compelling that that's what happened. But I just wonder, you know, how yeah, how much of just everyday life is objectively weird uh, in a way that we don't really we don't often appreciate i would say a lot of it um I, I just think in terms of the fact that i can now carry around a five inch brick of electronics in my pocket that has more you know computing power than you know the computers that took the first men to the moon mm-hmm. and at the same time what most people are using that computing power for is to have arguments over the internet or post pictures of cats yeah <laughs> I mean, somebody um, on our Facebook page posted and said, basically, if you go back in time, any any story written a sufficiently long time ago seems very, very strange because the societal values shift so much. I, I think we've probably all had the experience of going back and reading science fiction written in the 30s and 40s, and you're just reading along, there's a story about a rocket ship or something, and you're having a good time, and just all of a sudden there'll be something about gender or race or nationalism or something and just all of a sudden you're like holy crap this is you know where did this where did this come from we often joke about that as being when the suck fairy comes to visit you know it's it's funny because you know as i mentioned you know off air i i don't have the extensive having grown up reading science fiction background i came to it later in life and as a result there's a subset of classics that I probably am not going to get around to. And I'm okay with that. You know, I, I, I'm okay just hearing about the summaries and, and moving on because I'm, I'm, I'm interested in moving sort of the grand conversation forward. Um, and there are pockets of it from the period before we thought about things like race and gender and, and, uh, stuff like that where I'm just, you know, I'm okay not having read that because at this point, for the person that I am, some of those things are just going to make me so angry that it's not actually worth the emotional effort for me to read it because I won't get, I won't get the things about out of it that are wonderful because they will be eclipsed by the things that are not. Uh, I think we've pretty much hit everything on my list here, uh, except for maybe unconventional structure. Uh, it seems like the example of this that people mention the most is, um, from dusk till dawn which I've actually never seen, but everyone describes it as a, it starts out seeming like a crime movie, and then halfway through you've got vampires. Mm-hmm. And you're like, whoa, what mm-hmm. the hell? <laughs> you know? Well, I think it's funny that that's actually, a, that From Dust Till Dawn is a popular example of that. I mean, it certainly is a, uh unusual structure in, in, in the sense that, well, like, the, the first half of the movie, which is the crime movie you described, which is actually uh, quite a good crime movie, I thought. But then, like, it, when once the vampires show up, it turns into a suck fest. And, and I didn't, uh, uh, no pun intended. Uh, although, that would be a good pun, right? 
But, uh, you know, I mean, it just it, it turns into a terrible movie. And, it, and they're like two completely different movies uh, to the extent that since Quentin Tarantino wrote it, I actually wondered if he like kind of directed the first part and then Robert Rodriguez took over the sucky part. But because, um, you know, I don't know. I don't really like him as a director. But yeah, actually, uh, that just reminded me uh, of one of the one of the most interesting structural uh, movies I can think of. And one that is, uh, you know, very strange is Memento. You know, it's basically mm -hmm. it's told in reverse chronological order because it has to be in order to, to preserve any sort of uh, surprises to the plot, because it's about a guy who has uh, what's it called anterior grade amnesia. Uh, mm -hmm. He can't form new memories. And so he's basically he reached a point where this traumatic event happened to him. And, and after that, he is no longer able to form new memories. And so in order to tell this this crime story that the movie's about, they had to tell it in reverse chronological order and it's sort of interspersed with these scenes that take place uh, before the action of the movie starts but after he already had the traumatic event happen to him so he already has the memory problem and so it's sort of those scenes are interspersed with the main narrative and those are all shot in black and white to help distinguish between what's happening in the past and what's happening in the present of the movie and then all the regular scenes are in, in color but it's just it's like an exquisitely structured piece and it basically couldn't work any other way but as a result it's a very strange experience to watch the first time um and it, and it actually really rewards multiple viewings and i think a lot of weird things uh, or a lot of weird narratives do really uh benefit from multiple uh, viewings or readings so it, it's always interesting when that ha when when you discover things like that well i think we've talked a lot about the virtues of weirdness but are there downsides to weirdness uh are there just things i mean you guys must get stories in the slush right where like this is just too weird. I don't even know what what to make of that. And it seems like there's also sort of a stigma toward weirdness. Uh, I I thought it was really striking when when Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote John Carter. He initially wanted it to be published under the pseudonym Normal Bean, which was supposed to be sort of like Average Joe. It was just supposed to be a wink at the reader that this is a, a normal guy who does. I don't believe this all this crazy stuff. And his editor just thought it must be a typo and it was published initially as norman bean uh honestly i think publishing a book as normal bean is like the weirdest thing is weirder <laughs> it's gonna like, make people think you're weirder than anything in the actual book yeah but what do you guys think about those issues of weirdness just not working and there being a resistance on the part of people to even wanting anything weird um i mean as far as people wanting to avoid weird stuff because of that i mean i can i can certainly see how a lot of stories can make a reader make you feel uh stupid because you don't understand it because they're so weird and a lot and a lot of people obviously don't enjoy that feeling and so i mean we had talked in a previous episode about the whole slipstream subgenre which is uh you know the whole goal of that is to make you feel strange after reading it i i mean i think i can certainly see a lot of people not wanting that feeling i was really struck i read a book uh a number of years ago called The World Beyond the Hill, something like that, by Alexei Pension. And he basically, it's basically this history of people's stumbling attempts to actually write just an unapologetic fantasy book. And that for, for the longest time, any sort of fantasy element, it had to be a dream or it had to be the person turned out to be crazy or mm -hmm. there always had to be, you know, like like in Alice in Wonderland, it turns out to be a dream and The Wizard of Oz in the film, it turns out to be a dream, that sort of thing where it's almost like a scientific advance for people to just get to the point where you can just write a story that doesn't require some lame 
tethering to the real world? You know, I think that, you know, for me, one of the things I'm particularly looking for for Apex are stories that kind of push the envelope of weird. So the stories that I tend to have the most difficulty making decisions about are the ones where I'm not sure I understood it. Um, you know, John mentioned this before. And, you know, so I will hold on to things and, and sort of have that moment of, okay, is just is it just that my brain hasn't stretched enough in this particular direction to get what's going on here? Or is this just badly executed? And sometimes, um, or is this just not clearly executed? And sometimes it's a very fine line between, you know, I, I'm just apparently not smart enough to understand what this story is doing in, in this particular case. And no, the the story is keeping secrets for me that would help me to understand what it's doing. And some of those secrets need to be released to the wild so that the rest of us can understand. So sometimes it becomes a, well... You know, you work, you start, that's, that's a, often a case where you end up working with the writer to try to sort of shape it a little bit to make it slightly more accessible. Um, but I firmly believe in particular that short fiction should be pushing the envelope as much as possible. You know, I, on Twitter months back, I, I made it very clear that I was interested in experimental fiction and, and, you know, weird fiction is a big part of that. And, you know, I think, you know, I'm I'm not always a huge fan of gonzo fiction, the sort of stuff that's completely over the top to the point where you come around the other side. Um, but I think there's just room maybe for it. For people who don't know that, just talk about what what is gonzo fiction a little bit. Gonzo fiction, um, well, the best example I can think of is um, uh, the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas guy. He does gonzo journalism where... Um, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson, thank you. What Thompson does is, is his, his brand of journalism is essentially to sort of start working on a story and then alter his consciousness in a way that his telling of the story becomes heightened in a particular manner. So, you know, he'll like take some mushrooms before writing the story. And the images that he uses to tell the story are a result of that altered consciousness. But ultimately, he ends up shaping that story in such a way that it's still somehow accessible and gets across the feel of the uh, thing he's trying to express. I mean, you know, because we deal in horror, we often deal with extremes. You know, there's there's a story that I that I bought from Rachel Swirsky um, that hasn't come out yet that it, basically, like, I'm going to have to put a, a trigger warning on it for every possible kind of trigger there is. And she was like... Explain what a trigger warning is. A, a trigger, okay, sorry. A trigger warning is for things like um, stories that deal with uh, domestic violence or sexual assault or um, other things like that where people who have been subject to those crimes in real life might have a PTSD type reaction to it. And, you know, with Rachel, I was having this conversation where I was like, I've never seen, you know, these sorts of, these three types of stories successfully done in a way that didn't completely upset me in the wrong ways. And she was like, challenge accepted. And she wrote this story that was, it, I, I can't even like, I, I read it and I was like, this is the most amazing, disturbing thing I have ever read. And I bought it on the spot because I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that she'd managed to take something, a whole bunch of things that are so collectively awful and turn them into art. What's the title um, of that story? Uh, it's called abomination rises on filthy wings. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it it's not messing around. I mean, it's sort of. I mean, there's this movement called Bizarro, which it seems like yeah. is sort of the it's sort of gonzo, mm -hmm. but more overtly fantastical. Um, yep. Do you have any experience with that? 
I have a little bit um, only because I am acquainted with a writer named Rob Callahan, who I know through Twin Cities fandom. Um, I've not actually read a ton of his work, but I know that's the kind of thing that he writes. So um, I'm vaguely familiar with it. I would guess that we see some of I would guess that at least people who are attempting it but aren't quite at the level of where they want to be end up in our in our submissions piles. But it may not get through our first readers to me because the execution isn't quite there yet. So I'm not seeing a lot of it in my submissions these days. Yeah, I mean, I think I think to give the listeners a, a good picture of what bizarro fiction is, I mean, you just have to say some of the titles. Like Dave and I were talking about this uh, before the show, and so there, I mean, there there's some that came to mind when we were talking about it. And so there's a book called The Ass Goblins of Auschwitz, and The Haunted Vagina, and Baby Jesus Butt Plug. So you know, just based on these titles, I mean, you can obviously imagine that these stories are pretty out there. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, if you want to talk about like what the weirdest fiction is, I, I expect that's where most of it lives. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't I haven't read a whole lot of it myself either, though, so I, I can't really speak to it. But um, just based on um, the titles and the synopses of some of these things that I've read, it, yeah, it seems pretty weird. I guess uh, I'll just mention a couple more just examples of, of really weird things that people might want to go check out. Uh, some of the examples I have on my, my list here are Harlan Ellison's Croatoan, which is about a man who gets trapped in the sewers and finds that aborted fetuses uh, grow into sort of creepy babies, and they uh, make pets out of the creepy out of the crocodiles that people have flushed down the toilet and and have grown to giant size. Uh, Ray Vuk, I, f- I feel like no conversation about weird mm-hmm. fiction would be complete without a mention of Ray Vukcevich. Uh, his collection, uh, Meet Me in the Moon Room is full of really, really weird stuff. Uh, the story that sticks out in my mind is called We Kill a Bicycle, which is just about a world where skateboards and bicycles and cars roam wild and people sort of hunt them down and break them open and eat the meat inside. <laughs> <laughs> That's super weird. Uh, actually, a number of people, uh, when we solicited suggestions, mentioned Clive Barker's story in the Hills, the Cities, which is about some tourists uh, wandering the countryside, I think in Eastern Europe and discovering that the local custom there is for hundreds of villagers to strap their bodies together and create sort of giant giant conglomerations of hundreds of bodies that then fight. And when they knock each other over, hundreds of people just die. Their bodies are just splattered on the ground. And then you have some some more work more in the literary, like the Karen Russell vein. There's an author named Julia Slavin, and uh, she has a, a story I remember really vividly called Dentophilia, where it's just about a guy's girlfriend starts growing teeth all over her body until she's eventually entirely covered in teeth. <laughs> and there's this super weird story by Haruki Murakami called Dab Chick, which I can't even, I can't say anything about it without spoiling it. But <laughs> man, that story just like weirded me out. Um, there's a story that was submitted to FNSF uh, when I worked there called uh, Alfred Bester is Alive and Well and Living in Winterset, Iowa by Brett Berthall. And, uh, you know, Alfred Bester is one of my favorite writers. And um, I, I don't even really remember the story that well, but it was such a strange experience reading it because it, it actually, it, I mean, not only was Alfred Bester a character, you know, sort of referenced in this story, but it had like all these illustrations and stuff. And, and I just, re- I remember like the end of the story, like, and, and it has this weird illustration at the end of it too. That's like this perfect punctuation to the whole thing. And I mean, like, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't actually explain to you what made it, makes it so weird. Uh, you'd have to read it to find out, but I mean, it is a really strange story. When you were saying like, it's hard to remember the story I found going through these really weird stories. Cause I, I generally have an excellent memory for stories. 
But I was finding like the weirder a story is, it's actually harder to remember exactly what happened. You know, a lot of the way I reconstruct the plot is I remember a couple key things and then logically there are other things. I'm like, oh yeah, that that must have happened. And yeah, I can sort of piece together what must have happened. But with these really weird stories, you can't do that because you know, yeah. like something just totally off. I remember something totally off the wall happened at the end, but I can't remember because it it's totally off the wall, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the case with this uh, Alfred Bester story. And, uh, and actually also, uh, I, I was going to bring up this story by M. Rickert, You Have Never Been Here, which I talked about in a previous episode uh, as sort of the quintessential slipstream story. It, you know, it's just a story that I can't really explain. I, and I and I and when we talked about it before, I explained how I, I've read it. I, I When I first read it, I finished reading it and then I immediately started reading it again because I was like, what the hell is this? What? I, it was like amazing, but I, I just I had no idea what had happened, and I had to try to read it again. And I still don't I still don't know if I fully understand it. And like when Lynn was talking before about you know, not wanting to buy a story that she doesn't really understand. I, I, I identify with that because as an editor, I, I, it kind of feels like a betrayal of your readers a little bit if you publish something that you don't actually fully understand yourself because when you present it to them, they want to believe that it's going to make some sense, you know, if they're, if they're like a good enough reader or whatever. And as an editor, I don't feel like I can be like, oh, well, I, I'm just not, uh, I, I think I understand it, but not really. And so we'll just let it, leave it out there for the readers. Um, and so like the M record story is really the only time I've been able to make, make my, give myself a sort of an exception to that rule. I mean, and it only because it's like, I'm certain that it's brilliant and it's just, and the whole, the whole point of it is to make you feel that sense of strangeness or weirdness. And it definitely succeeds in that. I've had the experience many, many times in writing workshops where there'll be a story that's really in- incomprehensible. And it'll go all the way around the circle and people will say, oh, this was good. I really liked it. The language is interesting. Just really vague, <laughs> vague things. Mm-hmm. And it'll come around to me and I'll say, well, to be honest, I didn't understand what was going on in this story. Could someone else, other than the writer, explain it to me? And nobody can, you know, mm-hmm. but nobody's wanted to admit that they didn't understand what was going on. Right. Other weird novels that I have loved a bit, uh, Genevieve Valentine's Mechanique is a fantastic novel beautifully written. It is about a circus full of people who have had, they're all acrobats and they've had their bones replaced with sort of really, really thin copper pipe and other mechanical parts in an effort to make them better at acrobatics. And then they go on and they do things like torture each other emotionally and start a war and, and, um, you know, stuff happens. Um, yeah, but it's well, a, that's, that's a beautiful novel. We actually interviewed a, her when it first came out. So if people uh, are curious, they can go back and listen to us. We talked yeah. to her about it for you know, 40 minutes or something. Fantastic novel. Um, the work of Nettie Okorafor um, is another writer. Uh, she's another writer who does weird in a wonderful sort of way. Um, I read Zara the Windseeker to my daughter, um, which is one of her YA novels. And all of the technology is organic. Which, you know, it's not necessarily a new concept, but her execution of it is absolutely fantastic. And her novel, her adult, no- her novel for adults, Who Fears Death, um, has a lot of really wonderfully weird world building in terms of how technology is developed, how it passes from culture to culture, how it's used and leveraged and not used, and how that mixes with the magic that is present in the world that she's created. Um, the two are constantly in tension, but not always in conflict. And, it's an astonishing gut punch of a novel, and I highly recommend it. Uh, the other person I wanted to bring up was Sarah Monette. She's got a collection called The Bone Key, which, you know, um, 
full disclosure, I wrote the introduction to the second edition of it because I loved it so much. And she asked, um, but that ha- is one of her, her stories about uh, her character, Kyle Murchison Booth, who is a curator in a museum um, where he's, he, it's basically love. It's if Lovecraft and MR James had a baby that didn't have all the racism and sexism. <laughs> um, that's what these stories would be. They have that wonderful spookiness. They have that wonderful atmospheric weirdness, but none of the stuff that bothers me about a lot of those older stories. A couple of the other things I had on my list, uh, there, there's a story called Still Life with Boobs by Ann Harris, um, which was nominated for the Nebula. I, I don't recall if it won or not, but it, I mean, it's a it's a story in which a woman suddenly discovers that her boobs sneak off at night and go have adventures without her. So that's very odd, obviously. Um, and actually, it reminds me of another story that I had read in the slush pile at, at FNSF, and I don't remember the name of it or the author, or and I don't know if the author ever published it, but it was about a guy who could who discovered that he could like pull off uh, his limbs, and so like he he first I think he discovers that he can pull his fingers off. He just sort of pulls his finger and it pops off into his hand, and then he can like put it back on. And it's just like an exploration of that idea, and I I, I still remember it. I kind of wish that I could find the author because I'd like to reread it to see if like maybe I made a mistake uh, uh, in rejecting it, or I don't even remember if I did reject it. I may have sent it up to Gordon, and I mean, obviously, either either he or I rejected it because it didn't get published in FNSF. But uh, but it's a very strange story. And on the same subject of uh, sort of limbs being removed, <laughs> uh, one of the strange stories I published in Lightspeed is uh, her husband her husband's hands by Adam Troy Castro. Um, that's a story about uh, a, a war veteran whose body is destroyed uh, while he's serving, and uh, only all that remains are his hands. But in the story, uh, there's technology that allows his, you know, his essence, his memories, and whatever to be downloaded into a microchip or whatever. And so his hands are—he's actually living. He goes on living even after his body is destroyed but he's just his hands. So it's, you know, it's basically a very, it's not very, not very hard scientific uh, uh, story, but, um, but, but I mean, it's very, it's very emotional and it's very, it's a, it's a very interesting exploration of, you know, sort of if you, if you, if you imagine losing your loved one, but you have this one thing left of them that you can interact with and, ah, it's just a very weird and creepy story. That actually uh, reminds me, John, I just want to mention there's a Theodore Sturgeon story. I think it's called yeah. Bianca's Hands. Mm-hmm. And man, that story's weird. And it's, uh-huh. it's just about a guy and he just falls in love with this woman's hands. Mm-hmm. And he's not interested in her at all. It's just her hands he finds really fascinating. So he, it's, and, oh, it's just so weird. And it's just an example of a story that's, in, 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 achieves this incredible weird level of weird, weirdness with nothing overtly surreal or fantastical mm-hmm. happening. It's just this character is such a weirdo, you know. Uh, there's a story I reprinted in Lightspeed called Cucumber Gravy by Susan Pelwick. Um, it was actually the first story I think I'd ever read on sci-fiction, uh, you know, the the old uh, sci-fi.com website that Ellen Datlow edited. And it was it was just really strange because I, I wasn't I wasn't quite ready for it when I encountered it. But I mean, it's it's about like this pot dealer who discovers these this race of aliens that look like giant cucumbers. And and so that's a little weird. Right. But then. As the story progresses, like the cucumbers, like just sort of explode at some point, like for like, and he doesn't understand why, and they just it's just like this turns into this like juice that runs all over the place, and it's 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 so strange, as you can probably guess from the description. I swear, I swear, there was an I think it was an episode of Powerpuff Girls where at the (laughs) beginning they don't want to eat their broccoli, yes, and then the (laughs) Earth gets invaded by this like broccoli broccoli monster, and and the only way to to defeat it is to eat the big broccoli monster again. (laughs) 
Yeah, and then actually another story in, in Lightspeed that's just super weird, and it's actually a really good story. It's the story called RVs by Adam Troy Castro. And it's sort of the, the pro-life movement taken to an absurd extreme where life in the womb has become so cushy and preferable to being born that people choose never to be born. You know, they, they use medical intervention to remain permanently in the womb and kind of drive their, <laughs> uh, drive their, uh, mothers, I guess, around sort of like cars and they have all sorts of, you know, like TV and stuff inside the womb and, and so people who have actually been born are kind of second class citizens in this world and the, the people who are still in utero are the the ones with all the power and uh, and influence and stuff. And it's <laughs> what did didn't Harlan Ellison? He gave it a really good. Uh... Yeah, yeah, he raved about it, yeah, and it was nominated for the Nebula, and uh, it got reprinted in some years best and stuff. But yeah, that was actually one of the first stories I acquired for Lightspeed. And when he sent it to me, I was like, "Holy crap! What?" Like I was like, "Yeah, I'm buying this." That was how I felt about Armless Maidens of the American West when I when I read it. My my reaction was literally, holy crap, I am buying the hell out of this. And I think <laughs> the email I sent to Genevieve said, holy crap, I am buying the hell out of this. <laughs> all right, cool. So I think we could probably go on all night <laughs> listing weird stories because we have read a lot of weird stories. And people even people were nice enough to suggest all these weird movies. We didn't we barely even got a chance to touch on that. Maybe we can get <laughs> to some of these uh, on some other occasion. But I think, uh, John, we're, we're out of time. John needs to get going. So I think we better start wrapping up this episode. So, uh, Lynn, thanks for joining us on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And big thanks again to Karen Russell for being our guest today. Thanks as well to everyone who's written us five-star reviews in iTunes, including Okivision, Lee Smiley, Gordy740, and Peter Wrights. And a special thanks to Carrie Mercer for becoming subscriber number 40. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on PayPal. Also, I'm very excited to announce that best-selling young adult fantasy author Scott Westerfeld will be joining us for the very first time as a guest lecturer at this year's Alpha Workshop for Young Writers, a two-week summer writing program in Pittsburgh. Other guests include Tamara Pierce and Theodora Goss, and I'll be on staff as always. Other staffers this year include former students such as Seth Dickinson and Sarah Brandt, who have appeared as guest geeks on this show. For more information, visit alpha.spellcaster.org. And remember to nominate all your favorite works for the Hugo Award. Geek's Guide is eligible for the Best Related Work category. I'm eligible for Best Editor. And all of the original fiction I published this year in my anthologies, or in Lightspeed or Nightmare, are all eligible in either the Novelette or Short Story category. For more information, visit johnjosephadams.com and click on Blog. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.